0: Sold. Your number, madam. Thank you. Lot six six five, ladies and gentlemen. A solid brass egg boiling pan, once owned by the Duke of Grange Villa, Lord Pigby Smythe. The dents from that final jewel still present. Showing here. Do I have ten pounds? Five then. Five, I am bid. Six, seven. Oop! Oh, be careful, madam. Eight, nine. Nine once, selling twice, sold for nine pounds to the gentleman with the wooden leg. Lot 666 then, a radiogram in pieces. Some of you may recall the strange affair of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour, a podcast never fully explained. Our workshops have topped up the alcohol reserves and restored the rambling and foul language, ensuring that at least half of the facts on display are dubious at best. They have also fitted up parts of the program with wiring for the new electric internet, so that we may get a hint of its former terrifying glory. Perhaps we may frighten away the ghosts of so many years ago with a little inebriation, gentlemen.
1: <laughs> On tonight's
0: Spooky <laughs> Calamity Hour. I would give my right tit to cruise around in the mystery machine when I was an 18-year-old teenager.
1: Fred acts like he's in charge of this lot, so he's the arsehole, that's what I'm saying. The animal abusing prick.
0: Right. I can forgive him because of the cravat.
1: And to go back to what you were saying, I think what's irritating me more than Jacoby's performance is Jim Parker's fucking relentless incidental score. I'm not saying we want free drinks when we get there, but we have advertised the Hog in Armour Norwich on our podcast now, so that would be nice if we went there and got a free pint from the Hog in Armour Norwich.
0: Right. Hello and welcome to this annual outpouring of an All Hallows' Eve audio affair known as the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour Halloween Special. I am Dr Velvet. I am the Blackout. And we're here to open the creaking crypt door to reveal some trick-or-treat television.
1: Yes, hello you, and thanks for creeping by for our cautionary cultural critique of creepy television, where Britain's best-loved battle axe is never far from the crypt, because here all roads lead to the mortuary. If you head over to peggymountpod.com, info links for the episodes we're discussing is in the show notes over there. You can find us on the socials, get in touch to say hello, or to suggest programmes you would like us to cover. Before we chalk a circle on the mausoleum doorstep and fill it with arcane symbols and obscene graffiti, Dr Velvet, I've got to ask, where's Lump with the drinks?
0: Uh, this is a very good point, uh, actually. It's Halloween. We always get our drinks from Lump. Um, I shall ring the bell. And he shouldn't be too far down the road because he said he was going to stand outside in the hall when we were on air. Oh, well, then there he well
1: is. good, because I'm parched.
0: Yes, so am uh, Right, here we go. Here he is. Here he is. Here he is. In true tradition, what we have on the trolley here, I'm staying on brand with both the Halloween and the retrospectives. Uh-huh. Now, decades ago, I loved, loved the spooky range of post-mixed syrup made available from the SodaStream range. Dracula's (laughs) blood and all of that. Well, I've tried to recreate Witch's Brew. Now, the flaw in my plan was, however, that I had none of the necessary ingredients in my cupboard yesterday. Right. So... I got Lump to improvise. Oh, God. And, yes, 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 and uh, from the two ingredients that were there. So he's mixed absinthe and gin and he's done what the people said and carbonated it. Jesus. It's fucking rank.
1: <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Fair play for for trying. Rank. He does what he's told. I like that.
0: Right. Your spooky self?
1: Well, I can see that Lump has remembered the bottle I bought round. Thank you very much. Speaking of terror, today I'm drinking a homemade wine, or I'm told it's wine, uh, from my mother-in-law's next-door neighbour, who's got his own miniature vineyard and is trying his hand at this sort of thing. Bring this right on. She gave it to me because she didn't like it, and she knows I'll drink anything. This is a full-size bottle, handwritten on the label, Red Grape. There is no other information on there apart from September 2020. I have no (laughs) idea what the percentage of alcohol this is, but even I can feel it after a glass. Now, it's too light to be a red, but it's far too heavy to be a rosé. It's got like right. a sweet punch on the intake uh-huh. and an afterburn that's redolent of a bitter liqueur. I've found it's best enjoyed ice cold, and the only way I can sum up red grape is to ask you to imagine Mad Dog 2020 with a double shot of Benelin. Right. I'll, I'll warn you now, it's an acquired taste, although I am going to have to book a Specsavers appointment now while <laughs> I can still see the phone number. <laughs> Good Lord. But, yeah.
0: Is, is, it, is it my eyes deceiving me at this moment, actually, when it, when it says red grip, Is that something underneath in brackets that says honest? Or is that just me?
1: That might, might be just me. It well, have a glass of this. You'll be wondering what you can see then. Oh, intriguing. Absolutely intriguing.
0: What's also intriguing, while we're on the subject, is the first of tonight's creepy capers. And, gang, I think we've got ourselves another mystery. <laughs>
1: Scooby Doo, where are you? We got some
0: work to do now. Scooby where are
1: you? We need some help from you now. Yes, Scooby Doo was a mystery adventure cartoon from Hanna-Barbera which ran from 1969 to Oh, it's still going, right? It features the eponymous hound himself, a Great dame named Scooby, and his best friend Shaggy, always in search of something to eat. Shaggy's mates, Fred, Velma and Daphne have other ideas and they're always driving around in a brightly coloured van while sticking their neb into other people's business like teenagers who have got nothing better to do. This frequently involves some supernatural element which frequently turns out to have more earthly, namely financial, concerns at its root. The episode we watch watched tonight is from the first series, Scooby-Doo and A Mummy 2 written by Ken Spears, Joe Ruby and Bill Lutz. This aired on BBC One on Thursday the 17th of September 1981 at 4.35 in the afternoon. Because it's a normal thing to do in the night time, the gang have decided to visit the university's Department of Archaeology, where, among other exhibits, they see an ancient cursed mummy. After accidentally stealing an artefact from the Egypt display, it looks as if Shaggy activates the curse, because you really can't take that one anywhere, and soon they're being pursued by a creature with financial concerns of its own. (laughs)
0: Nine pegs, straight off the bat. Nine pegs. Scooby Doo was one of the programs that I watched as a kid that changed my life.
1: Mhm. Yeah, that's fair.
0: Absolutely. And uh, this p- p- particular this series of Scooby Doo from yeah, it influenced me in so many ways. Uh incredible.
1: Is it too mainstream and conformist to call Scooby Doo peak Hanna Barbera? Uh no. Because I don't think they've produced anything as successful either at the time or since, so that's got to count for a lot.
0: Everything else was a derivative. Okay, okay. so they cra- they cracked the formula with the Scooby Doo. Uh, in terms of narrative, in yeah. terms of characterization, this is this was the success, and most formats that followed were literally a tweaking of the Scooby-Doo formula. So Captain Caveman, Goober and the Ghost Chasers, Clue Club. It's all about a gang of kids and either a dog or, in the case of, like, the new Shmoo, an alien. Mm -hmm. Um, But inevitably, they were solving mysteries. They were out and about solving mysteries. And there were just so many of them. The Funky Phantom, but Scooby-Doo, there's the root. There's the root. So the episode itself, we open with two things... ...that are among the coolest things in the history of things. Uh Uh-huh. Number one, we get an establishing shot of our first location featuring... Yes, indeed, the Mystery Machine. Up there with the TARDIS and the 1966 Batmobile as one of the most iconic vehicles in media history. Agreed. I would give my right tit to cruise around (laughs) in the Mystery Machine when I was an 18-year-old teenager. Even now, I mean, you know, but I cared less when I was Uh 18. Um, And then, the music that goes with Mm Scooby-Doo. Now, there's the theme tune, first of all. I mean, instantly recognisable.
1: Yeah, this is what I've got. It's written by David Mook and Ben Uh Raleigh. How many different Scooby-Doo series was this used on? I don't have, like, the massive back history of... Because there's been, like a lot of different Scooby-Doo cartoons over the years. Up until the mid-80s, I think there's about either eight or nine sort of iterations of Scooby-Doo.
0: So they um, they used this particular recorded version on Series 1. Then in Series 2, they re-recorded it. Same song, okay, but a different okay. version. I'm not um, sure if it's different singers or they're singing a different pitch. I know whatever. I know
1: they changed the arrangement for the uh-huh. second season of oh, this series, mm-hmm. but I don't know when the title changed if they used a completely different one. Because oh, Scooby-Doo, it- Where Are You ran for a total of 25 episodes, and yet everyone knows this theme tune. Yeah. Despite, I'm assuming later ones didn't use exactly this. I know it's been referenced later, but it's never been like, minute one, here is your tune, here is a minute of this before we get into the show. I don't think that continued necessarily. And yet if you ask someone to sing Scooby-Doo, they'll sing this song.
0: As far as my knowledge of this programme is concerned and i do have every episode of scooby-doo ever up to the 90s right um scooby-doo where are you that theme tune was used on season one two and three and then the, the name of the program changed it became the scooby-doo show right. and then we had um the scooby-doo and dynamite hour mm-hmm. then we had the new the new scooby-doo movies uh and so on and so on so um yeah the minute the actual title changed that's when they changed the theme music
1: okay yeah, the music also plays into my other point again. Before we meet any of the characters, um, what is Mystery Inc.'s business model? How are they being paid for any of this?
0: I don't think they are.
1: It's definitely their main focus, isn't it? Because the song tells you that. Oh, w- uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It goes, a human My brain has always assumed that it's Fred singing the song. Is that fair? Fair. Very fair. You know. So it's gone, Scooby Doo, we Where are you? So whoever it is, is singing the song specifically to the dog, right? We've got some work to do now. This tells you it's a commercial venture. It's not a hobby. It's not a pastime. That's fine. Scooby-dooby-doo, where are you? We need some help from you now. Now, the dog, to whom this is addressed, right, the dog's assistance is required. The dog is part of this. This is Mm -hmm. why I'm wondering how they're making a go and concerned of this. So... Again, would it be would it be acceptable to say that Fred's the leader of this group? Is you know he's the boss, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's yeah. the front man. Felma's the brains. She's got the analytical acumen for the most Jiggies. part. Mm-hmm. Um I imagine Daphne is probably relegated to answering the phone and doing the filing. But you know what? That's still work, it's still valuable. There's nothing there's no shame in that, that's fine, they just keep taking her out with them. Shaggy's just like their hippie mate, who he acts as a good stooge for luring out the wrong ones for each case, that's fine. But what is Scooby-Doo actually there for, though? what does he do? He's a dog after all, isn't he? He is. The lyrics make him sound like an intrinsic member of this mystery-solving yeah. team, and I wonder what he's bringing to the group. Are they meant to be using his keen sense of smell and associated detection skills? Because all I see shows. Scooby doing is padding around the place, breaking stuff and eating yeah. Now, to that's, be fair, that, uh, he's a large dog He can't be blamed for any of those actions, right? I don't mind that But what the fuck are they doing taking a great din? Into a museum, exactly The dog is clearly nervy as fuck They're just making matters <laughs> worse by putting him in situations where he'll get upset Fred acts like he's in charge of this lot So he's the arsehole, that's what I'm saying The animal abusing prick
0: Right? I can forgive him because of the cravat But, yeah, okay <sighs> Fine as well as the theme tune, Man, the incidental music that goes with mm-hmm. this series It's of... beautiful, isn't
1: it? It's beautiful.
0: I mean, Hoyt Curtain. N- never has there been, nor will there ever be, any TV music score as effective, evocative and as relevant... To lending a tone, an ambience, and a mood to a show as this, in my opinion, um, so yeah, the music—I mean, that's be before we even meet any characters and and any
1: plot. So the gang start off. It's night time, right? They start off in the Department of Archaeology. Um, the professor—that is his only name. The professor is showing them around their new Egypt exhibit. That's fine. They built a replica tomb. Uh, to put in there, they've got a real mummy, right? And there's Mm -hmm. one valuable coin. Everything else is a a reproduction. It turns out later there's something else that's a genuine thing as well, but everything else in there generally is a reproduction.
0: I'll tell you what is genuine, and that's the professor's jowls, which can hold four supermarket trolleys' worth of groceries in one go. Well... The man's (laughs) like a bloodhound in a Mac. Anyway, go on.
1: We... um, The mummy's been brought here by Dr Najib. Yeah. He's a very tastefully portrayed, uh, let's just call him a foreign character. They don't say those words, but that's what he is. Right. Um, We learn here that there's a curse, which means that if the mummy is ever removed from his tomb, he'll start turning people into stone. Bear in Mm. mind, the first part of this curse has already happened, right? Okay. Um, And yeah, it's all explained by Dr. Najib, who is let's just say ropey as fuck. If you could ever imagine a cartoon Egyptian, if you were just going to throw all kinds of Tact and subtlety out of the window because it's 1969 and you're drawing a cartoon and you just want a foreign man. That's what Dr. Najib is, right? Yep. Yeah.
0: Looking as sus as tits. I'm telling you. He really is. So after this, um we cut to the well, the gang go to the malt shop for snacks. They do. I'd love to go to this malt shop, but I would not be ordering liverwurst and ice cream sandwiches. What the hell is that about?
1: I think. That's meant to be a joke. Well, which, now, which brings me into my first criticism, which is one of the mm-hmm. points where you're just going to be looking at me and pointing at the door. I don't think the jokes in this episode are that funny.
0: No, they're not. No, they're not, I agree. <laughs> they, never, they never ever are.
1: The visual gags and the slapstick are really slowly paced, like they're dragging it out for a 20-minute runtime. Going, no, 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 you got to do that slower, but then it won't be as funny. Do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and the script, the jokes like the ice cream they just feel like really sort of entry level don't worry about him Daphne Anker is over 3,000 years old that's funny he doesn't look a day over 2,000 to me and you're like is that it was that the joke you wrote were you expecting that to be better in the performance ok fine Um, you've got the the gag with the two cats where Scoob's mm-hmm. there and there's a cat behind him and mm-hmm. then he looks back at the gang and then a real cat appears because the first one is like a statue right a real cat appears and looks exactly like the statue then Scooby turns back and does a double take and ends up punching the statue then punching the cat and you're like is that the joke? the cat looks like the statue okay okay then now maybe maybe it's the audience laughter that's twice as loud as anything else on the rest of the soundtrack. That's making this worse for me. I don't know. I refuse yes. to believe that a live audience ever saw this. <laughs> Stock
0: Hanna Barbera audience laugh track there. Yeah, definitely.
1: And I think if they tightened it up and did away with the laughter, mm-hmm. it would paper over the. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just me expecting. Is it too much to expect a cartoon, a kids' cartoon, to be funny? I don't think it is too much. No, no.
0: I think it's part of its raison d'être.
1: And then yeah, they're like you say they're they're in the they're in the sandwich shop. Shaggy uh-huh. attempts to pay $1.50 for, what's that, three hamburgers and two sandwiches? Yeah. Which, I mean, fine, yeah. I don't know what the prices are at that time in that place. That's all right. Um, shaggy attempts to pay with a a $1 bill and a priceless coin, which is like, oh, it must have fallen into my pocket. Really, Shaggy? Really? Mm.
0: How blase is he about that?
1: How blase are the rest of them about that? Oh, don't worry about it. We'll just take it back. And you're like, What? What kind of kooky 50-cent piece is this? Hey, that's the old Egyptian coin. Like, wow, I must have dropped it in my pocket by accident. We'll give it to the professor when we get back. Come on, grab the sandwiches and let's go.
0: I see you, Norville Shaggy Rogers. I uh-huh. see you. Anyway, they, d- they decide to go back to the museum to return it. Fair enough. Um, only to discover. Well, yes, Professor Jowles. Has been turned to
1: stone. He has. Not only has he been turned to stone, it's not like huh? a standing-up museum statue. He's a sitting-down statue. This yes. will come This will come into play later, but yes.
0: Yeah, yes. He's been turned <laughs> to stone at his desk. I bet you're going to go down the same line as I am. I bet anyway, I probably am. But, and then Velma blurts out, there's only
1: one person who could have done this, the mummy. Well, this is it. You know, this seemed remarkably accepting of a, like a supernatural nemesis that suddenly appeared. I like that. I don't, I don't dislike that at all. That's fine. You know, it shows they're yeah. kind of open-minded, and they're just like... They've gone, here's a supernatural menace whose only aim seems to be reclaiming a priceless coin. Mm-hm. Now, if that was the case, if you're in a museum, you notice that a mummy has disappeared from its coffin, and a mummy is chasing you around, shouting... COIN! COIN! Now, I think what I'd do, probably, is give him the coin and see what happens.
0: Yes. Because that would yes. stop it,
1: wouldn't it? That would stop yes, him chasing you around and asking for the coin and killing any more people and turning them all to stone. Give him the coin uh-huh.
0: well, just to see what happens s- next. On a scientific level? Yeah. Shoot them, you know, yes, there could be some kind of significance here. Let's do that. Let's just do what the right thing and give him the coin
1: instead of the, just... The mummy yeah. from Egypt is certainly after the coin that's from Egypt. I think the two might be connected.
0: Yes, yes. If anything...
1: Yes stopping this from happening when we have no clear way of actually stopping the mummy in its tracks um, that's only going to drag things out for a bit longer and if anything result in our dog being turned to stone
0: Um friend Daphne they go off together Velma, Shaggy and Scooby go in the other direction and mm-hmm. we, we encounter the first chase when they accidentally discover the mummy Yeah, and by God it was so good to see those rolling backgrounds again
1: so they've sussed out that they've sussed out, like for clear now, that the mummy wants the coin. Mm-hmm. Their options are, as we've just discussed, A, give the money the coin, B, get the fuck off the premises and alert the authorities. Yep. What do they do? They go over to the science department because <laughs> Velma picks up a bit of bandage and goes, This doesn't seem 3,000 years old. It
0: was attached to the mummy previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in order to stop the mummy from chasing them, Scooby nails the bandage to the floor with three nails
1: yep yep i like i like this moment
0: this stops what i suspect to be uh maybe six foot two mummy Mm -hmm. weighing about i don't know 14 stone that stops him in his tracks
1: it does if you were cynical you might think he's got a hammer just attack the mummy but no no you're right absolutely put three nails in the ground with a bit of bandages coming off That's fine.
0: That's right, right, um, and and the, the mummy eventually gets free, of course, and which leaves this bit of bandage that Velma then discovers later.
1: Yeah, she, um... Velma then goes to the over to the, the science department, tests how many thousands of years old a piece of fabric is by boiling some water next to a rack of test tubes. This is going to be good.
0: Um, yeah, you know, she actually claims to be using potassium disulfate. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm assuming this is necessary in carbon dating. I've looked this up. It's not.
1: Well, naturally. I mean, the show's already shown us how much it hates history. Now it's telling science to fuck off as well.
0: You know what I mean? So anyway, um, Velma does her thing in the lab. Um, so she's buggering about with these test tubes, and she, in order, the mummy appears. And in order to escape the mummy, she adds something to something and creates these thick fog-like clouds Mm-hmm. Um, and in the chaos, Scooby vanishes. Dun dun dun. They lose Scooby. Shaggy and Velma obviously go out to look for him. They come across this. There's a shed, and in front of the shed stands, you've guessed it, Stone Scooby Doo. He's been turned to stone by Coin the Mummy.
1: That's right. Oh, and um, Doctor Najib is stone as well. We forgot to mention that. They find him in yeah, his car did. earlier on, oh. and he's stone. He's turned into stone, so he's definitely off the suspect list because he's been turned to stone. That's remember, right. That's remember right.
0: that. So, so we've got the <laughs> professor, uh-huh. uh, Doctor Doctor Najib, and now yep. Scooby. They're, they're all stones. All stone, or, or rather, they're all Actuals, stoned.
1: Actual, yes. Actual, actual, actual stone. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. She so can look at a bit of bandage and go, "That's not three thousand years old." Yeah. But she'll look at a a statue, and just go, that's definitely stone, I don't need to test that. This will come up in about three minutes' time.
0: <laughs> I like some of Elma's dialogue. I do like the way she terms people now and again. The mummy appears and she's like, oh, he is big, bad and bandaged again. I bet she's good crack on a night out, Velma.
1: Yeah, she's some. Um, once she gets a few gins inside her, you definitely yeah. want her on your team, not on the other side, yeah.
0: <laughs> you want to sat next to you in a pub quiz. That's what yes. you do want. Yeah.
1: In a fight, I was thinking, but yeah.
0: Right, yeah. Well, both, they fight after the pub quiz when you don't win. Okay. She'd be the first one to throw a pint of Shandy at three tables down. <laughs> Followed by, ho, oh, dickhead, clamp it. That'll be Velma. You just know it. The Mummy is a shit villain.
1: He's a decent bricky though, isn't
0: he? It is. oh, Tremendous. <laughs> Tremendous.
1: <laughs> Scooby and Shaggy are like, they're hiding in a shed... And then they open the door to think, we've we've run into the shed because we've been chased by the mummy. So let's have a quick look out of the door that we just walked into to see if the mummy is outside the door, but hasn't burst through the door yet. Literally and mum-
0: seven seconds later.
1: Yeah, and the mummy's there. He's built a brick wall up to, like, waist height in front of the shed.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: There's, there's quite a lot of... Um, Sort of construction and stonemasonry going on in this episode, isn't there? It's it's quite impressive.
0: It is impressive. I didn't see any bricks outside at the time either. So were they in his pocket or... I I don't know. I don't know.
1: They were around the other corner of the shed that you can't see. But yeah.
0: It's almost as improbable as an electric saw working in the water.
1: Oh, mate. So Velma's like, Daphne, turn on the lights. So Daphne, standing next to a workbench, just reaches round to her left for the first sort of wall-mounted lever she can find. Yanks it down. There's a lever that says lights and there's a one next to it labeled power saw. Which one do you think she turns on? I mean, let's let's not get into why there's a massive switch that says power saw and that the power saw apparently would have no on-off switch of its own. You just turn it on at the mains and bang, it's on. There we go. But which one do you think she turns on? It's the second one, isn't it? It's the power saw and it it goes fucking mad. It's chasing them around the room. The flex is 400 metres long. Yes, yes. And Velma... This is Velma Oh no Danger prone Daphne turned on The power saw Why the fuck Are you lot Letting her tag along How much is your Liability insurance She's more trouble Than the fucking dogma
0: Incidentally by the way Just touching back on um, The mummy Bricking up the shed What mm. is the logic Immuring Shaggy And Scooby In the shed
1: So that they'll die Of old age And that he can Just take the coin He's 3000 years old They've established this He's got time He can wait it out That's fine
0: Think he's related To Mumra
1: Almost certainly yeah. Oh, he's certainly going to be his neighbour, isn't he? He's going to be the neighbour that he doesn't complain about.
0: Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. That's fair enough. Coin. Coin. He's <laughs> not much
1: conversation. Mind you, yeah, it'd be all right in a pub quiz when they were like Mumra's reading. Who was the replacement for Mike Neville on Look North? Coin. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Fairly limited usage, but you know he has his moments. So I'll give him that. definitely (laughs) the mummy runs like a fucking idiot well he's 3,000 years old and he's covered in bandages
0: bless his heart I felt sorry for him in a way but anyway they collide with him and he gets booted into a it's a basketball hoop isn't it Mm
1: -hmm. Um, we've missed a bit
0: have we? What have we missed?
1: The, the Shaggy discovers Shaggy and Scooby discover where the stone statues are coming from. Of course, because this happens. Hey, like what's this? Quick-drying mold cement and spray molds. Is that how the creep made stone statues of everyone? Uh-huh. Well, that explains how someone can make a statue, Shaggy. It doesn't explain how the one of the professor was in a seated position, or how the one was made of Scooby-Doo when he was missing for like three minutes
0: this was my problem because I'm thinking this has got to be some operation this Uh the criminal has got to have had a team behind them similar to the average Hollywood movie production
1: I mean I like the reveal that it means that ah there's a statue but the person that isn't the person the person is not necessarily dead they've just Mm. like done a statue um but when they see the statue of the professor they don't go oh there's a statue of an unconscious person (laughs) <laughs> there's a statue of someone reading at his desk what some yeah. um, what what was going on after the, the the villain let's let's stop saying the mummy after the villain has like abducted this person to make a statue this seems like a long setup they're only out getting a sandwich man yeah if i go into subway i'm not in there for longer than 5 minutes
0: so we get to the much anticipated reveal uh-huh. The final reveal, Freddy takes the mask off the spooky villain, and it
1: is... Dr. Najib. Dr. Najib.
0: <laughs> did you did you get it? Did you work it out?
1: So wait, it's the dodgy-looking Egyptian bloke, who's looked and sounded suspicious as fuck since the first frame when he was introduced. Is that right?
0: So not many clues.
1: Well, I'm glad that Hanna-Barbera aren't trying to push any kind of hippie bullshit about cultural sensitivity on a young audience. Right. To, be, to be clear, I'm not saying that it can't be Dr. Najib, just that it was clearly always going to be. Dr. Yeah. Najib seems to have gone to great lengths to get his hands on the coin, when, which he could have stolen at any time, given that he's involved in setting up the exhibition. Uh-huh. With his expert modelling resources, I'm fairly sure he could have knocked up a replica, then switched it at literally any other time. It's not like Shaggy was going to be able to keep this coin after all, is it? I mean, what the fuck?
0: And then we find out what the significance of the coin...
1: Ah, well, first, this from the professor.
0: So it was apparent that Dr. Najib knew the secret of the coin. And after you kids left, he broke
1: in hoping to steal it. But when I surprised him, he had to tie me up in the shack. Actually, professor, he did have another option. Once he's made the statue of you, he doesn't need you anymore, does he? He could have hit you over the head with a brick, put you in the sack with half a dozen more, and then thrown that in the river. I think this professor doesn't appreciate how fortunate he actually is.
0: And then we finally learn the significance of this coin uh-huh. that's let that's led us a merry dance for the last yeah. 20 minutes.
1: It has. In this record, it's led us a merry dance for the last 45 minutes, but yes.
0: yes well, it has, Yeah. <laughs> so so they put the coin into the, uh, into the a statue. Yes. Into the head of a statue. The one the other the
1: genuine back. museum-grade piece that they have in there, yes. Yep,
0: yeah. yep. Yeah. And it, it, it opens the mouth of this mm-hmm. statue, and inside the mouth... Is a jewel, a shining, beautiful jewel.
1: It is. It is. I understand how the coin is used to like open the mouth of the statue. One, no one seems to have rattled the statue and thought there's something in there. Fine. Okay. We'll assume they've like got around that. Um, Doctor Najib could have made a replica of the coin. Let's not forget he's an expert fucking model maker, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He could have made that, ensure it was the correct weight to trigger the mechanism, then used it to open the vase, steal the jewel. He's made a replica of the coin The coin's back in the display No one need ever have fucking learned Of part of his plan No one knew this duel existed until now Yep No one needs to put bandages on No one needs to fuck about. out Dr. Najib is an overly dramatic twat uh, this, The episode we've had Is with the best will in the world Formulaic I don't mind that it's formulaic mm. But it's certainly You know we're at like episode 12 here it, This isn't the first episode it's still very early in the run, but that's fine. Um, I think the best approach by now for Mystery Inc., when they come across any kind of spectre, would be A, everybody leap on it and pin it down, If because if it's just someone in a suit, that'll be easy. B, mm-hmm. one of them pull out a compass and stab it in the fucking eye. See how supernatural the reaction is then. <laughs> right, C, right. there, that saved everyone a lot of time.
0: All right, so that's one mystery solved. There's one more remaining. How many pegs would you give Scooby-Doo Where Are You, Scooby-Doo and a mummy too?
1: Well, as much as there will always be a place in my heart for Scooby-Doo, this does feel quite basic. Box ticking. Um, Again, it's fine that the episode contains the staple conventions of the cartoon, but it doesn't feel like there's much more to it than that at this early point. Seven out of nine. It's still great, obviously. How about yourself?
0: an unequivocal nine from me i expected. see its flaws they don't matter to me yep. this cartoon to me was life-changing little story actually there you go i was at primary school and it was my birthday mm-hmm. my birthday this year i think it was on a wednesday and uh, i'd come home from school and mum had a birthday party for me and they had the radio on and it was a it was a local radio station right and um They had the birthday slot. They had the birthday slot. And they said, oh, come and listen, come and listen. They'd had it uh, arranged so that my name would be read out for me birthday on the radio. Right. Um, Just as the guy was about to um, announce my birthday, I heard the titles for Scooby-Doo starting in the living room and belted through. I missed that little announcement for me birthday on the radio for Scooby-Doo.
1: Yes. Fantastic work.
0: There you go. (laughs) That's how important this cartoon was to me. Absolutely.
1: Lovely stuff. hmm So what everyone wants to know, though, more than more, more than the pegs on the line, because I think we've all known what your pegs would be for that, how more many than, steps...
0: More, do they want to know this more than the taste of a liverwurst and ice cream sandwich?
1: Absolutely, yes. hmm OK. <laughs> how many steps, mm-hmm. bearing in mind this traditionally a lengthy journey from American mm-hmm. animation... Um, How many steps would it take you to yodel up the mountain? One, two,
0: three. Right, Scooby-Doo features the vocal tones of the legendary Casey Kasem, of course, who popped up on a 2003 edition of US game show Hollywood Squares, along with Barry Humphreys, who starred in the TV series Selling Hitler, next to... John Boswall, who came along to 1987's The Trial of Klaus Barbie with. (coughs) Peggy Mount.
1: Something's going on. I'd better find out what it is, Roger. Robustly done?
0: Robust. That's the word. And your good self?
1: I can match you step for step and also do it in three.
0: You don't say.
1: this episode of Scooby-Doo, Coyne is voiced by John Stevenson, who rocked up in a 1965 episode of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. with David McCallum, who was in Hear My Song, as was Norman Vaughan, who starred in 1981's The End of the End of the Peer Show with Peggy Mout. If anybody's next, it's me. Superb,
0: superb, superb. I have to say that was absolutely exhausting and, might I suggest, it's worthy of a visit to the malt shop. While we look across to another table and order whatever Fred and the gang are having, let's see what we can buy amongst the Halloween things. Now, from Milton Bradley, a weird game, Voice of the Mummy. Press the button. From within the tomb, the mummy speaks. Look
1: out. The unholy snakes of Amon reach from below. Move up one level. Each player tries to
0: capture the sacred scarab. He who collects the most jewels wins. The Voice of the Mummy, the electric sound game from Milton Bradley.
1: There's a new cereal in the neighborhood With O's and Ghosts Tastes real good Ghostbusters! Marshmallow Ghosts Fruit-flavored O's Ghostbusters taste great With milk and juice and toast A nutritious breakfast with the ghost
0: Ghostbusters! Fruit-flavored O's Ghostbusters! Marshmallow Ghosts Ghostbusters! Hey, what are you gonna crunch? Ghostbusters! To bite your finger It's, it's a Dracula, Dracula game, game. Yeah, no, just, it? Set,
1: just set the clock, the clock. Just try, just try your, luck. your luck If Dracula's cape opens You have to put your finger in his mouth and press the lever If he leaves a mark on your finger You have to start over again He didn't bite me If you can sneak all the way around Dracula's house You'll win the game You're not supposed to bite people It's, it's a Dracula, Dracula game. game I want to Bite Your Finger From Hasbro <laughs> Well, that was them. Buy the things. I'm certainly going to buy some things.
0: I think you should buy the things as well. Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, well, speak, speaking of spooky things, it's not really that spooky. It's a fax machine. There it goes. They're going to get it. Again, again. Right. Hang on, hang on. Never fails. Never fails. It's like people know. It is like they Jeez. know.
1: Oh, why do we bother? It's another one of these. All right. Throwing a Halloween party, you'll need bobbing uh. apples. Why not have your bobbing apples delivered to your door using our patented Big Track service? Imagine the delight of having up to one bobbing apple delivered every hour by our electronic driverless... Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a bit late for all of that. If they could invent something which could deliver pumpkins, they might be onto a winner. We need to get rid of that fax machine.
0: I couldn't agree more, actually. You know, that window is beckoning. Yeah, know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let us move on and let's beckon the next bat from our belfry, whilst at the same time donning a top hat and traditional guising coat to catch a train and become a quiet town's local cracker. Ha-ha! You weren't anticipating that, were you? (laughs)
1: Another iconic theme tune and another half hour of pant-papping terror. Yes, Tales of the Unexpected was Anglia Studios' anthology series of the sinistral and supernatural to spook up our Saturdays and Sundays over nine series from 1979 to 88, where homegrown morality plays would have a twist in the tale. Spearheaded by adapting short stories from Roald Dahl, the programme began to branch out to other writers. Tonight we've watched Stranger in Town, written by Sidney Carroll, directed by Wendy Toy, and led by Derek Jacobi. This episode originally broadcast during Series 5 on Sunday the 23rd of May 1982 at 10 o'clock at night. Way past my bedtime. When an eccentric, brightly beclothed character arrives in Norwich and begins enchanting the townsfolk with his quirky antics, one man has a little heart to impress and wonders if the jester's true motives could lie elsewhere. Well, I mean, of course they do. That's literally why we're watching this. A note to you all, there will be spoilers in this. Nothing will be unexpected by the time we've finished.
0: Amazing titles and music, which, I will add, were bittersweet for me. Oh, is that? On the positive, they're perfect in terms of the actual music, but the imagery mm-hmm. that it evokes. Um, a lot of people don't realise that the figure dancing, the silhouetted figure, is a, a character actress, Deddy Davies. Right. Who is Miss Parfit from That's My Boy. Right. On the negative side... When I used to hear this as a kid, I stress hear this because I was upstairs in bed when my folks would be listening to this of a Sunday eve. And I'd hear that music and I knew it was time for school the next day. So the music was sinister and fear-inducing on an unintended level. <laughs> I didn't like school. You know what? I didn't like school because I knew I hadn't done my own work. Go on.
1: You know what? Producer Ken told me earlier that he was chatting mm. to Mick round at the Buffs. And he said he remembers as a kid, yeah, he used to hear Ron Greiner's legendary theme tune, like yep. you, drifting up the stairs when he was in bed. Yep. Now, he he knew what Tales of the Unexpected was, but he was never allowed to stay up for it. So one night, he's heard it, he's crept down the stairs, and through a crack in the living room door, he's just been able to see his dad on the set E, excitedly rocking backward and forward, wide-eyed, he's rubbing his hands on his knees. This must be great, thinks Mick. His dad was so transfixed by what he was watching that the kids quietly managed to push the living room door open and just slide through enough to just hide down by the side of the settee to watch it. Anyway, it turns out the telly was off, the music was playing on a record, and his mother was dancing in front of the fire wearing a black morph suit. To this day, Mick has never seen a single episode. (laughs) On that that topic, you can buy... The 7-inch single yep. of this mind-blowing theme, uh, mm-hmm. you can buy it on eBay. There are two different versions, be aware of that, but prices start at around £7.
0: How much is the version that's played on the banjo? £9. No, I thought it was good yeah, good,
1: good. Seriously, before we get into this episode, why do we all think of this music as being so spooky? I is know. It, is it purely down to the context in which it's used?
0: Yes, I think it has a lot to do with it And the titles, the the visuals that go with it That's
1: what I mean, Um, because it's like If you just hear it in isolation It's a fairly fast-paced waltz It's in a major key Mm -hmm. It's got this sort of hypnotic undulation Uh So unless you Hate the suggestion of fairgrounds There's very little in there that's sinister at all
0: It would go well On an album uh, With the theme tune to Picture Box. Very true And you know what? Funnily enough, this episode is all about the music, isn't it? It is. Oh
1: God, isn't it?
0: Isn't it, though? Yeah. Charming opening scenes. Charming opening scenes. Uh-huh. And we are led, quite relevantly, Pied Piper-like, to something sinister. It's got to. Of course it has. But the score is beautifully choreographed to the visual performance. This is This is lovely stuff that we're watching at the beginning here. So we start with Derek Jacobi alighting a train. It's pulled into this quiet, unassuming town, and he
1: gets Norwich. Off the Norwich. It's pulled into Norwich. I know it looks quite unassuming, but yeah, you know, it's it's actually a major city. They call it a town, but yeah.
0: So yes, he gets. I wondered if it is Norwich. I didn't realise it was Norwich, and now I know. Maybe he was going to um, the auditions for Guard for Nightmare. Possibly, I uh-huh. don't know. But he gets off wearing wearing a top hat. Mm hmm. He is sporting a beautiful beard, um, spats, uh, Cuban heels, and mm-hmm. a guising coat—a ge- a very eccentric gentleman—is how you'd politely describe him as he yep. gets off.
1: And um, he's basically half tramp, half jester. Picture that.
0: Yes, actually he is yes. And he skips across to the to the paper shop, and um, amuses. Some local children with a couple of tricks, sleight of hand mm-hmm. sort of thing. He's breaking chocolate bars in half and he's doing all kinds of stuff and he's just—he's bewitching the children.
1: Oh, you should point out now, when he breaks the chocolate bar in half and it turns mm. into confetti, that becomes a thing later on.
0: It does indeed. Pay,
1: pay attention to that.
0: Yes. Uh, there's, there's foreshadowing all the way here. Off he skips and the children follow him. They do. Has that advert... About "Don't Go with Strangers" featuring Duncan Preston, falling on cloth ears here, or did they not just not get that in Norwich?
1: They didn't get that in Norwich. It's not. It's not Fair even enough. that. It's the adults in the town as well. They're all just absolutely entranced by him. Just there, there is a strange fellow. We should follow him down the street, as you would. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's yeah. Um, it's all too much, isn't it? All of it,
0: as you would say. This is on ten. This
1: <laughs> Jacoby's performance. It's supposed to be like outlandish and florid. Attention seeking and pleased with itself, and I'm just instantly annoyed by all of it. If I was out on the street like today and this happened, mm. I'd be like, Oh, mm-hmm. who's this prick? Was yeah. 1982 a less cynical time then?
0: Well, it was in some parts of the world, right. uh, but I guess not in Norwich. Cynicism hadn't hit Norwich.
1: And to go back to what you were saying, I think what's irritating me more than Jacoby's performance is Jim Parker's fucking relentless incidental score.
0: It never stops. Now Na- we oh. get well it, briefly, briefly. Now and again, it stops, but just for seconds, just while the uh, the band get a chance to take a swig of a pint. But um, yeah, this is this is relentless.
1: But straight from the off, when we open, when we're in the train station, we get the stranger. That's Jacoby's character. He's basically narrating his own story. He is now. That's a slightly weird choice because then he's not the stranger to all of us watching, the viewer instantly gets his inside track on the character via his monologue. Mm-hmm. So while his Only in con-
0: appropriate points.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's not like, describing everything he does, but you know that what you're seeing is from his point of view, because he's, like, guiding you literally up the garden path here. Mm-hmm. Now, while this continuous performance of his around the town comes off as, not like, very theatrical, um, mm-hmm. the dialogue... That he confides to the viewer is a lot more simplistic. It's almost childlike in places.
0: It is. Is this supposed
1: to foreshadow a more fundamental third act reveal, or is it just badly scripted?
0: I'm going to go for the former and give them a break.
1: Okay, fair enough. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I think it helps to to enchant us, just as he's doing with the
1: townsfolk.
0: Right. I think that's what's going on there in my mind.
1: Because it's moments like this. They thought I was amusing. They thought you were fucking mental, mate. In any other town, they'd be going out of their way not to make eye contact and doing their damnedest to be somewhere else. If this
0: happened today, he'd be on a list. Yes. Uh, Yes. Uh, I particularly enjoyed the dialogue with the hotel receptionist. I thought that was enjoyable. It's like Derek Jacoby has decided to be contrary and awkward and utterly ridiculous just to annoy people. And quite frankly, I thoroughly condone that sort of behaviour.
1: He's doing it well. He's very well.
0: <laughs> I would like a suite I, with a, a drawing room and a bedroom and a bathroom, and I've, the view that I'd like is of the entire town. Your beautiful town. I'm sorry, sir, we only have rooms. Yes, a room. That's what I want. <laughs> yes, I know. But, but you said, and it, it doesn't have any windows. Um, so there won't be a view. A view? Do you think your town's good enough to, 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 for me to just be stood at the window and look at it all day? Uh-huh. I just want a room.
1: I don't yeah. want a window. He's properly, properly fucking mad. Yeah. Yeah. So what? So what does the receptionist do? Gives him a room. He's, he gives him a room. I know that he's been put on the spot. I know that he's got to like do this. He's probably thinking, oh, if I just give him like a key to the fucking store cupboard. Yep. Tell him it's a room that doesn't exist. He'll be back in ten minutes. I can palm him off. He can go somewhere else. That'll be fine. Doesn't happen, does it? No, 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 no. He stays there for over a week. We'll get on to that.
0: He does. He does indeed. And he signs his name in the hotel register. Christopher Columbus. You know, working behind that desk, he'd go, Oi, back here, dickhead. (laughs) Name and address.
1: He's, He's like, every day this happens. I tell you what, don't run a hotel in Norwich. We move on to the story.
0: And we get to a point where Columbus's daily walk is interrupted as he stands thoroughly agog at the sight of Clive Swift and some builders.
1: Call him by his name, 46-year-old Clive Swift.
0: That's right. The man
1: is younger there than both of us are now. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) 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 We've been over this before, dear listener. You know this. You know my thoughts on Clive Swift. Um, He looks great for his age. The problem is he's always looked that great for his age, even when he was 18. Yes. (laughs) Anyway. Um, yes, 46-year-old Clive Swift is playing uh, the owner of a building for Mr Latham.
0: Mr Latham. Yeah. And
1: this man, he can go from yelling at one of his employees to being great mates with them in the same sentence.
0: That's right. What That's a dick. Right.
1: Everyone yeah. on that site fucking hates him. They're looking at putting him in the foundations of the next fucking hotel they're working on. Good Lord. Some sleight of
0: hand, some meaningless sleight of hand occurs.
1: He loves it, doesn't he? He loves his tricks from the joke shop.
0: We realise... Why that meeting occurred. It seems meaningless at the time, but as the story gets on, there is a complete meaning for it.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then another gem from the monologue. <laughs> they thought I was crazy, did they? I'd show them if I was crazy or not. Is that an homage to Claude Rains in The Invisible Man when he did this? You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you.
0: Columbus stabs a cauliflower with his umbrella. And nicks it out of somebody's oh. grocery bag and yep. hitches hitches a lift with some Hell's Angels before spending some time um, with the Gothic Rock.
1: And, yeah, he's, uh, he's just, he's like, he's banging around town coming up with all of this. He's, he's just ranting around the he,
0: city, he is isn't just, he? He is just ranting. I will just turn the clock back a couple of seconds because when he goes and has a fun time with the Gothic Rock, the soundtrack The, the heavy metal
1: punk rock goths.
0: I mean, listen to this. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? You
1: see, even if you're not looking at them, for for you, listener, at home, if you haven't clicked on the link and watched this yet, you'd know it was heavy metal punk rock goth. Because Jim Parker's brass band has got a belt and drum kit behind it now. Absolutely. That's what heavy metal sounds like.
0: I mean, I'm hoping that there is a complete soundtrack album to this. I, I I want this.
1: Imagine, if you will, for one second, the shenanigans that Derek Jacoby is getting up to with the heavy metal punk rock goths. Imagine those nights.
0: I bet, I bet it would put Lemmy from Motorhead to shame. I bet it would. I bet it would put Ozzy Osbourne to shame.
1: They'd be struggling to keep up.
0: I think Derek Jacoby got a telegram from the Motley Crew uh-huh. to join them. It was 82, you know.
1: Yep. He's, he's replied to one. He said, I can't join your band, but here's the lyrics to a song I've written called Girl, Girl, Girl. You can have that. I actually, no know, Derek Jacoby had write Wild Side, wouldn't he? Not Girl, 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 but yeah.
0: No. Smirking in the boys' room. That's what he'd write. <laughs> That's what of, he'd write. Speaking of
1: which, oddly enough, if I see a small boat on a canal... Piloted by a bearded lunatic with eight young children. I'm calling the police and the social services.
0: Absolutely. Straight away. <laughs> Straight away. That's probably... I, I would I would spot them while I was sitting, having a beautiful pint in the hogging armour. Uh-huh. What a fantastic name for a boozer. Isn't it? I love that. I want to go there. Should we go? Do you think that still exists?
1: We definitely should. I, I believe... It's definitely mentioned, I've looked this up online, it's, it is mentioned as being a thing, so I assume it's still a thing, so yeah. I'm not saying we want free drinks when we get there, but we have advertised the Hog in Armour Norwich on our podcast now, so that would be nice if we went there and got a free pint from the Hog in Armour Norwich.
0: It would be absolutely beautiful. The
1: Hog in Armour. There we have it. There's a, there's a lot of builders drink there. That, that's fine, that's not that's not a thing against it.
0: No, not at all, especially when they... they... Beautifully wear neck scarves that Charles Hawtrey would be proud of.
1: I tell you what, that neckerchief is tied so tight. Can we just have Can you listen to what it's done to this guy's voice? Excuse me, my good man, would I be correct in assuming that this is the establishment where Mr. Latham conducts his business? Quite correct, Columbus. It's first floor. Thank you But if you've come to see Mr. Latham, you better hurry. Mr. Latham leaves at six o'clock it's five minutes
0: too Columbus enters the business premises of Mr. Latham
1: yeah we should say we're, we're back on track with the plot now yeah this is we've had the, we've had the your, your fun's over We're halfway through the 26 minute runtime. this is where the climax begins. The stranger Derek Jacoby, swans into 46 year old Clive Swift's office It's six o'clock on a Friday night just as his secretary's going home.
0: That's right. She's away. She's not hanging about for anybody. Yeah, she's, she's got like, I don't get paid bit.
1: overtime. You can fuck off.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: He corners Mister Latham. He does, and he explains why all of this is happening.
0: And it's 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 an interesting scene. Off comes the hat. Off comes the coat.
1: Mm-hmm. On go the handcuffs. On go the
0: handcuffs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, let's let's face it. Up to the point where he's walking past the hog in armor. Norwich, just five minutes from
1: this podcast, yeah,
0: (laughs) and round the corner from Latham Building Supplies. It's um, it's it's you don't know this is going here. You don't know this is going here. It's beautiful, Mm -hmm. and the reveal occurs. As I say, off comes the hat, off comes the coat, off comes the beard, off comes the hair.
1: Yep, he's he's it's all he's one step away from a skeleton standing there. He is. It's not that kind of episode, though. It's not like there's nothing supernatural about it at all.
0: It's not, but we do get... To, you mentioned the skeleton, quite rightly, because we do get to the bones of why he has returned to this town. It's revenge.
1: Now, we did say at the top of all this, there's going to be spoilers. Here is where the spoilers begin. It turns out 46-year-old Clyde Swift has done a murder. But, for reasons which aren't explained... Derek Jacob, he's done time for it. Apparently, Latham framed him. 15 year in the nick, that's what he's done. So now he's come yep. back, he's learnt a load of what can only be described as shit conjuring tricks in his time in prison. Yep. And he's like, I know, I, I've, I'm I've, working on the perfect plan for my revenge here. Yeah. <laughs> can we see it? He kills him. The crunch
0: of that knife.
1: What I like is mentioned- how pink his face goes when that happens you don't see the knife going in because this is ITV on a Sunday night that's fine but you do get to see Jacoby's face while he's pushing Uh it in Uh and unless it's something they put in in post and I don't think it is his face goes a beautiful puce colour when he's just like pushing that blade in you just hear that crunch
0: it sounded like a knife going into an apple I know for a fact that in the Foley department that's what they used for this it has to be
1: so all of this all of this was a plan his plan right to get revenge on the guy that had him doing 15 years for a murder he didn't do. That's fine. Yeah. And part of that revenge was murdering the guy. That's also fine. I get that. I think a big part of the problem with this is that Derek Jacoby, with a false beard and a patchwork dress coat, looks remarkably similar to Derek Jacoby with no beard and a brown mac.
0: Ah, but it's all about people's perception, do you see?
1: But he has got a Derek Jacoby has got a very distinctive face, hasn't he? Therefore, it's not oh, that much has. of a disguise. It's not that much of a subsequent transformation.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. I don't, if the I know conceit you mean.
1: is that the guy is just blended into the background once he got changed, yeah. I suspect this might have been miscast. If I'd framed someone for a murder that we learn absolutely no more about, remember, I think I'd remember the face of the guy I'd fitted up even if he turned up 15 years later with a straggly false beard. Because 46-year-old Clive Swift has no idea who this guy is until, until he takes the beard off. And you like, he'd know him, though, wouldn't he? He hates the guy enough to have fitted him up for a murder. He'd definitely remember the guy.
0: We'd remember his voice, I would... I would well, then, then again, his voice changed, because as Columbus, he speaks very much like that, sir. But then when he's talking, like, his true identity, he's almost like that.
1: There's something in Jacoby's mannerisms during that sort of reveal monologue. 46-year-old mm-hmm. Clive Swift gets the odd sort of word in there, but it's basically a monologue when he's walking around the desk. Mm-hmm. Um, it puts me in mind of Daniel Craig in Layer Cake. I do think okay. that Jacoby has had a fucking great time making this. Uh-huh. He probably expected the final product to be a bit more atmospheric. And the final cut, co- <laughs> this looks like it was shot on, literally on like a video camera. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, 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 that's fine. You know, we have to get over the production sort of issues.
0: As creating an alibi goes, it's not a bad crack of the whip.
1: Oh, it's not. I just Is I it- thought there was going to be like a further twist in that 46-year-old Clive Swift had a twin brother, and that was the one that did the murder, and that the strangers accidentally killed the wrong chap, making him a proper oh, no. murderer after all. But no, it's not that. It, the story just it? explains itself in a very linear fashion, and there is absolutely no twist here. All I'm saying is when they stopped Roll Dahl, when they banned Roald Dahl from writing these, it might have gone mm. off the rails a bit. Oh, yeah, to be clear to our listener, who hasn't watched this, mm. he murders 46-year-old Clive Swift... Sorry, he he kills him. Then because he's wearing like normal clothes, a brown Mac, and he's taken off his Cuban heels. No one notices who he is. He just gets on the train and fucks off and that's the end.
0: That's the end. Now, on his way to the train station, he gets in. um, He he picks up a newspaper Mm -hmm. from from the aforementioned uh, newspaper desk kiosk and um, sprinkles confetti. And then he gets on the train and he sprinkles confetti. Is that accidental
1: or deliberate, that bit?
0: I couldn't tell.
1: I think that's and accidental. If, the bit he puts you, over the over 46-year-old Clive Swift's dead face, that's deliberate. That,
0: that's deliberate, yes. But That's when, the in thing a that'll catch stage. him
1: out. But yeah, I think it's accidental. I think it's just some confetti that happened to be in his pocket.
0: Right, because if that's the case, then that's fine. Because I thought, oh, is your ego getting the better of you and you've sprinkled that just to leave a like a calling card and you're being clever? Because the kid put two and two together. The, the guy who was selling the newspapers watched him, saw well, the confetti fall and thought...
1: Kind of. The kid, yeah, the kid at the train station sees this confetti and that casts his mind back to when he'd sort of snapped this chocolate bar in half. Yeah. But obviously, the kid at the train station doesn't know he's just done a murder.
0: No, that's right. So it kind of that's looks right. from the
1: look on the kid's face where he's like just there with this awestruck, what, 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 what is that? That's a normal guy and some confetti's just come out of like his pocket or his glove. Like he's never seen or heard of confetti before this nutter arrived. Right, he works for a news agent. He's handling piles of newspapers and magazines coming in every single day. He's never seen a small amount of shred paper before. Right. Would this kid be well, surprised if he found a leaf in a forest?
0: I think it's more that this this kid's looking at uh, Jacobi and thinking, "Oh, but someone else did that the other day, and now you've done it. Are you him?" Are... But and that's what kind of annoyed me because I thought Columbus, are you, I, I, have you done that to be clever?
1: That's meant to be the twist brackets, trademark, close brackets. That's meant to be the kind of, oh, that'll be the thing that gives him away, even though the episode ends before that happens. But like I said, the kid doesn't know he's done a murder. He's just like, oh, there's some more confetti. I wonder if the guy on that train is the guy who had the confetti the other day. That's still not going to prove anything. There's not going to be a headline uh, two days later saying... Mr Latham brackets 46 year old Clive Swift close brackets, is dead and had confetti on his face no one's going to learn about that it doesn't matter none of this in the last fucking minutes is going to figure into this at all I'll tell you what's really pissed me off though what's that the stranger hasn't paid for that hotel either has he
0: that's a good point
1: <laughs> he's signed into the hotel as and Christopher no Columbus prepayment. he doesn't yeah, give yeah, the receptionist yeah. any money he puts like a his feather quill in his pocket and just swans off upstairs with a key the story's payoff actually occurs on day 10. The narration mm-hmm. tells us this. He stayed in that hotel for nine nights by that point. We know he's taken a room, not a suite. Now, the Maid's Head Hotel in Norwich, it, it's a real thing. It doesn't do single rooms. I've been on their website and checked. It does do suites, but as the guy said, they didn't have suites available. Even their most standard double, these days I mean, it starts at £105 per night, moves up to 135 once you hit the weekends. Right? So yeah. even if we're being nice and assuming that his stay has only covered one weekend, he's racked up a bill of eleven hundred and forty pounds on the room alone. Now, the J- Bank of England inflation calculator translates it <laughs> translates this into three hundred and twenty pounds in 1982's money. Which doesn't right. sound like that much until you remember that a pint cost sixty pence then and a paper was fifteen P. Uh-huh. He's just and- they're trying to run a fucking business.
0: And he's made it worse for anybody else who turns up because now they're going to want to see DNA prints, they're going to have a retina scan when they go in just to prove you are oh, who you don't are. Get me,
1: don't get me wrong. When he's there at the hotel desk at the start and the guy says, oh, it hasn't got a bath, and Jacob, he's like, I, I don't need a bath. Being more theatrical, you can rest assured this man smells of piss.
0: Yes, oh, God.
1: That room needs fumigating after they- fucking CSI have been in there, definitely. Yes,
0: yes, yes.
1: Good Lord. Again, this seems like a lot of effort to go to... ...just to carry out a very basic crime. This is like a perfect part of the episode for Scooby-Doo here. Ten days of fannying about with cheap conjuring tricks... ...all he had to do right... ...was dress as a motorcycle courier... ...go into the office... ...fucking brain-lath him with his helmet... ...before getting changed into the clothes that he brought in... ...as a parcel he was pretending to deliver. He might also have to kill the secretary on the way in... ...but that's collateral damage... That'll be a lot more simple. Think of the amount of time he's put into this. Ridiculous.
0: Pegs clipped to the top hat Uh of a Uh cracker. Uh
1: How many? For me, fair play, I was expecting some kind of satisfying ending to this. So Stranger in Town delivered exactly on the premise of Tale of the Unexpected, at least. Four out of nine.
0: Okay. Um, What about you? (laughs) Well, it's no lamb to the slaughter, this, is it? It's Uh, not. It's not. No, I didn't think he was just going to murder one person. I I literally did think it was going to be a retelling of the Pied Piper Hamlin. Right. Um, Yeah. Oh, you thought he was going Uh,
1: to kill all the kids instead? Okay.
0: Well, no, not exactly. I just thought it was going to be a case of he would be doing all these horrendous deeds amongst the town and he'd get away with it because he'd enchanted the townsfolk to such an extent and he'd be walking around blame-free, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so five, five OK Yeah, five But the question on every town dweller's lips, Blackout As uh, they uh. see you dance by in a coloured court is Yes How much prancing will it take you to yodel up the mountain?
1: I can do this in two hmm. This tale of the unexpected stars Derek Jacoby, of course, who was in the Bounty Hunter episode of Minder alongside George Cole, Dennis Waterman, James Albury and George Layton, who all rocked up in our old favourite Night of 100 Stars with... Peggy Mount.
0: Dolly's man, your money and Finch's ginger twins. Ah, yes, the old favourite. The old favourite. Love it, love it.
1: Would you care to join me up here where the air is thin? Try and stop me.
0: This tale of the Unexpected also stars 46-year-old Clive Swift, who was keeping up the appearance in three episodes of that seminal sitcom which featured... <coughs> Charmian May, whose alter ego Miss Milton kept a firm grip over Paradise Lodge in Your Only Young Twice, whose residence register included... <coughs> ..Peggy Mount! I know there's some in the market square. I shall combine it with a little shopping. That's how we do it. That's exactly how we do it. Lovely work. And there we have it. A perfect crime, possibly. Though not as much of a felony as not listening to Blackout while he tells you all about your spooky socials.
1: Yes, thanks once again for being with us when he could have been out penny for Halloween. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email PeggyMountPod at gmail.com or we're at PeggyMountPod on Twitter. You can also find us by searching for the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour on Facebook. And don't forget to go to PeggyMountPod.com to check out the show notes for this episode.
0: It's as simple as that. It really is. That's our whack for this special Halloween episode of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. And that's our whack until the festive season, when we'll be back to throw some Christmas critique down your chimney sometime in December. So until then, remember...
1: Keep, keep Megan! the right of me.